and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. That was a close call. No, I knew exactly what I was doing. Okay, you timed it out. A very well-timed drink of water. Okay. Uh, We're recording this early because I am in Mexico at the time that we would normally be recording this. Oh, my. Um, And we also, when I say recording this early, not only early in the week, but also earlier in the day than you, you know, we we usually uh, have a nighttime record. Yeah. This is uh, a noon start, which means... You get to see me with not only water I usually have, but also my protein smoothies okay. that I made. I was wondering why there were two cups there. So yeah, you've got- because I, well, I used to have, this is very interesting to the listener, I'm sure. I had a cup that was big enough and it had a built-in straw that was perfect for okay. homemade smoothies. I dropped it and shattered it on the kitchen floor a couple <laughs> weeks ago. So now I've been using two 7-Eleven coffee cups to put my smoothie in. I thought it was like one's uh, an upper, one's a downer, yeah. you know? <laughs> Yeah, um, so, but you're not getting, like, I've done Hey Watch This episodes with water, two smoothies, and a coffee. Just, like, <laughs> that's what it t- That's what it takes to get through an hour with Paul Goebel. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the, the afternoon, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not usually in podcasting uh, mode. I'll say this, in the day. If, if my neighbor makes noise, there's nothing I can say. <laughs> you know, I can't complain because it's on a Saturday and it's in so the So there is an upside the afternoon. to it then, I like. guess so. Uh, well, now... We have something we want to talk about at the top of the show. Sure. But that's going to require us. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's going to give us the um, the, the, the happy opportunity mm-hmm. to introduce our guest earlier than we normally would. That's true, yes. So why don't you do that? All right. Our guest is, uh, you've heard him on countless episodes. You heard him uh, on the Beepies. He is uh, what is known as our uh, res- resident musicologist. It's West Anthony. West, how you doing? Fine. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back on the show. Absolutely. Uh, you going to talk like that the whole time? Maybe. All right. <laughs> um, so, okay. Now, Wes, thank you for being here. Now, we've got a whole episode to get to. Yes. But more important than that, as far as I'm concerned, we've got some fun announcements to make. Now, one is not a full announcement. It's more just a, an acknowledgement of something before the announcement. Uh, so you, re- somewhat recently, started a new podcast. What is that podcast called? It is called Musical Notation uh, with West Anthony. That's the subtitle. Mm. <laughs> you can just look for Musical Notation. Uh, we, we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. It's musical Notation or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love West Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll, you'll never learn that. Um, yeah, just, uh, I'm, I'm a few episodes in. I'll, I'll be going for at least a few episodes more. Now, hopefully I'll be going for a long time. I've got plenty of things to say on the subject of music. I've got all kinds of episodes planned. Uh, it's... It's crazy how many th- I've got like uh, the next month and a half of episodes planned and nice. I have a whole book of ideas that I just keep writing stuff down and it, there's just so many things that I can do. There's so many things that we can talk about because music is just, uh, it's something that I love anyway and so it's something that I love to talk about and then there's so many things you can say about music as it pertains to film because one of the things that... Uh, that I laid down for myself as a rule was that I would be very free in terms of not letting laying down rules about what is and is not music uh, as it pertains to film. Because I think a lot of people think of that it's just going to be me talking about film scores composed by people in rooms or garrets or caves or whatever. But it's not just that. Although there's certainly a lot of that, and then there's a lot of variety and uh, in terms of that kind of music. But also, you know, you talk about, I can talk about musicals, 
that have been you know, on the Broadway stage that were adapted to film. If there was a song that has been in a movie that was not necessarily made for that movie, like any, you know, any Martin Scorsese film is loaded with songs that were not really written for his films. And 60% of them are Gimme Shelter. Yes, yes. He's, he's really been overdoing with that. But uh, I don't know why it was in The Aviator. Uh, but it's, <laughs> but that's, that's something that, uh, that we can talk about. It's something that I have talked about. And it's something that I will talk about uh, on and on into the future. Very exciting, and so the, that is the that's the acknowledgement of what is already what has been. It is now time to announce what will, what will be. No, no. <laughs> well, not anymore because here's why. Uh, so we are officially bringing musical notation with West Anthony. Uh, you will remain uh, the. Uh, we are bringing it into the BP podcasting fleet. So if you go to battleshippretension.com from now on, you will find episodes of Musical Notation, which is very exciting. We're very happy to have you aboard, West. Hooray! Toot toot! That's 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 my little tugboat bringing up the rear of the Battleship Protection fleet. <laughs> that is West. I hope you don't take this the wrong way. That's the cutest thing I've ever seen. First off, I find the word tugboat cute. I don't know why. Tugboats are cute. <laughs> they're they're definitely cuter than dinghies. That's true. Well, yeah, D- yeah. That dinghies make me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so uh, so that's very exciting, and, and so listener, uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, as of now, um, we'll post the first episode, not the first ever recorded, but the first one for the BP fleet, and then uh, from now on. Uh, and how often do you how often do you post? Every week on New Release Tuesdays. All right. The record industry has uh, moved New Release Tuesdays to Fridays. So I've Leaving it wide open. There yep. is a vacuum for <laughs> musical notation. So yep. So now, now New Release Tuesday is mine. People are just people are just wandering around, being like, yeah. what, where do I go? What do I do? Where's the do music? You, <laughs> do you guys think, before we move on, that home video is going to go the way that music releases did and, and move to Fridays as a standard, or are they going to keep Tuesdays? I think they're going to keep Tuesdays because Friday is, there are two elements of movie releases. There's theatrical and video, okay, and right. I don't think they would put them on the same day. Yeah, that's that's the only thing. Because I thought about that as well. It's like, oh, is the, the video industry going to follow suit? Because, let's face it, they're all owned by like, you know, the three the same three or four <laughs> yeah. conglomerates. Yeah. But then, yeah, that was the the thing that I thought of. It was the same thing that you said. Is yeah, they they don't necessarily want two different competing things coming out on the same day. They've already got competing movies coming out in the same theater. Yeah, right. they don't want you to have to choose between this movie in the theater and that movie in the theater, or this movie in the theater or that movie that you can watch in the privacy of your own home. Right. This is very awkward. This episode is brought to you by Viacom. <laughs> um. um uh, Speaking of watching movies, this is something that uh, has I, uh, recently come up again. I can't remember who was talking about it, but uh, occasionally there's the idea of being able to stream new release, brand new release movies, rent them and watch them at home the weekend they come out. Mm. The deal is, is that it costs like 50 or $60. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the but latest I, thing that I saw being floated. Yeah. But I think the thinking is that you have friends, like a pay-per-view fight or whatever, you have friends over, everyone ships in, and like that's mm. what you do for the night. Do you guys see that catching on? Well, I think in particular, I think they're looking at families. 
because okay. something like that, especially when you have you know you you have mom and dad and you have a couple of kids, and just the tickets alone, that's probably going to be fifty dollars. But then you got to factor in all the unhealthy snacks. Yeah, sure. So uh, you can easily go up to like a hundred bucks. Whereas if you just pay fifty dollars and everybody gets to stay home, and you could probably bring in a couple of friends, yeah. and they can you know, just say, oh, just you know, bring a pizza or you know, bring a bottle of soda or something like that, then. That that covers it for you. I can see where that's going to be really nice yeah. for a lot of families. And people increasingly have nicer and nicer home home theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, but it doesn't even seem people, like that bad. Even people who don't have the nice nice theaters, if, yeah. if it's going to save them money, I think yeah. that alone is probably going to be a big draw for some of them. So it sounds. I mean, it sounds like before this thing catches on, I just got to get myself some friends. <laughs> David, I'll <laughs> come over and we can luck. watch whatever it is you want to watch. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, I, I come from a family, I'm one of three siblings, or I'm one of four siblings. I mm-hmm. have three siblings. I have to make sure I say that right. Uh, <laughs> it's like, so there's, there's this one person who crossed you a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, going to the theater as a kid, it was six of us. So um, part of the, and this, I always find this really fun, part of the ritual of my family going to theater was on the way, we would stop at the grocery store and go to the bulk candy section, and oh. we just get to pick out some bolt candy that we wanted and sneak it in essentially. Um, not that anyone really cared. Uh, and so, um, I just thought that was a fun memory because I had more variety than you have at the, uh, at, at the movie theater. And I probably got more candy for less money. And oh, uh, undoubtedly, that's the way it should go. And I so began my lifelong love affair with chocolate covered raisins, which are still, uh, I don't say raisinettes because these were generic, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, chocolate-covered raisins are the best. Um, so much that once in high school, I was in Kansas City. And an FAO Schwartz, I don't know if any of those still exist. All the ones I know of are closed now, but I don't know if they're still. I feel like, isn't in, there one in, in New, New York? York? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the one from Big. I don't know yeah. if that's still there. Uh, but I was in an FAO Schwartz in Kansas City where they had a bulk candy wall, and I went to get myself some uh, chocolate-covered raisins. I pulled out the bag, you know, that big noise put a scoop of chocolate covered raisins and managed to just completely miss the bag <laughs> and just poured a giant scoop full of chocolate covered raisins all over the FAO Schwartz floor. And the girl who worked there was like, it's fine. And she was just like, go. <laughs> she just wanted me out of there to clean it up. How old wow. were you at this point? I was in high school. <laughs> That's delightful. Like old enough to have a job and be able to spend my own money on chocolate covered raisins. Um, but and old in her own mess. I still didn't apparently. I still yeah. had the hand-eye coordination of a toddler. Apparently, <laughs> couldn't get the scoop in the plastic bag. For all intents and purposes, you're just a little shit. Yeah. You're like, what do you think of this? <laughs> <laughs> Clean it up. Yeah, yeah, that's horrible. All right, um, that's that's enough. Um, who are we brought to? By, uh, brought to the listeners by. There we go. By whom are we brought to the listeners? Nice, this week? nice. Okay, so. For the first time, because usually I, I will read it off my phone. Today, I think I've got it memorized. All right. Okay. Complete silence. All right. We'll see how it goes. David, you've heard this enough that you can fill in the blanks if I miss anything. No, I, uh, I don't pay That's attention. That's right. You do talking. kind of gloss over. <laughs> uh, okay. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members... It's subscribers, a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, uh, the movie curators bring, uh, bring you a new film 
damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring you, that's right. Bring you a new film. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to watch, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, if you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. There's also a special offer for uh, you, the listener of Battleship Retention. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. All right. And uh, I will also do this on top of my head because I've never had copy for <laughs> yeah. this. I always make it up, um, but it's pretty much the same every week. Uh, TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great and they sound great. And Tyler and I use them each and every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't regret it for a second. We never look back. Uh, they're all available at TweakedAudio.com for a low, low price. And if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, um, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So, uh, make sure to go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home. Isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at home impression kit today for only 1495 bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Okay, this is... Uh and here's something else I'm going to do off the top of my head because we've never had copy. But oh, it's the that's same right. Thing yeah. I, do. Uh, I think it gets longer every time. No, it, it did for a while. Okay. And now I'm just like, okay, this is this bullshit we got to do. <laughs> um, I feel like, I guess this, that's probably how like Jimmy JJ Walker felt about saying dynamite at some oh, point. Oh, like, no question. Oh, let's just get it over with. Like, yeah. I, if you have a catchphrase, I got called out on Twitter this week. By Jape Man, our friend Jape Man, okay. called me out for uh, having too many catchphrases. Uh, I don't know if that's how he meant it. That's how I heard it. Which is, I, I, there are too many things that I say. You're like, you're like Geico with its ad campaigns. Like they've got like four or five of them. Right. At this there's point. like the Gecko, and there's are there still cavemen? Do they still do the cavemen? I don't think they do the cavemen anymore. But then for a while they had that like sentient stack of money uh, that was just watching you. That's Geico. That's Geico. I thought that was like H&R Block or something. They um, do. H&R Block has like stacks of money as their thing now, but they don't have eyes and they're not just staring at you. Uh, and I don't know if, if Geico has that anymore, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, but this is episode, the, the, the name, number of this episode is 470. If you look down at your uh, MP3 player, what have you, um, perhaps you're listening from your phone on your desktop computer or laptop computer, your, your tablet. Mm-hmm. Um Whatever it is. And as listeners know, if, 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 uh, if an episode is divisible by 47. No, and you've got it all wrong. Oh, damn it. This is episode 470, which means that it is divisible by five. Okay, yeah. If an episode of Battleship Retention ends, the number of the episode ends in either a zero or a five, yet is not evenly divisible by the number 50. Okay, yeah. Then it's a profile. Okay. And in a five, that's not how we do it anymore. Is that right? That's the old days. Back when we see, back when we gave this up, we, we did, that that sustained itself for a while, and then we were like, 
profile every five fucking episodes. Are you yeah. kidding me? Okay. So you're yeah. right. It ends in a zero, but it's not. I loaded the wrong cartridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. So yeah, you're right. Whatever. It's episode 470. We do this every 10 episodes unless it's divisible by 50. Um, and we're doing a profile. The fact that West is here probably tips you off that we're doing some sort of musical profile. Some sort. Um, but even more special than that, we are. This is a. This episode's going to end on a cliffhanger. Yes, it will. The, this is a. Uh, this is a part one of a two-parter, right? Possibly three. Possibly a three-parter. We will be looking at the career of composer John Williams mm-hmm. in the '60s and '70s only. Yes. This is part one. Of a however many part we decide it'll be yes. on the career of John Williams. Like I said, let's get into it, shall we? Here's how we um, here's how we decided to do this. By we, I mean Tyler and West. West hey, David just showed up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually pretty <laughs> um, true. <laughs> West picked uh, eleven pieces of music. Mm-hmm. He actually picked an even dozen, but we one was vetoed for being from television. Yeah, um, that piece of music can go fuck itself. <laughs> All right. You can go jump in a lake, which Absolutely. is apparently, according to Jape Man, one of my other catchphrases that I say too much. But it's like, jumping in a lake is already a saying. Yeah, you, it's just a turn of phrase. I say fair enough. I say, to yeah. a certain extent, I say uh, a step in the right direction, you know. Okay. Those are okay. all things that, turns of phrase that people have. But what was the second one you said? Uh, to a certain extent. Yeah. That's yeah, a you thing do I say that, and I, um, but I like it. I like to hedge a little bit. Because it's, to a certain extent, is something you use as a nice way of saying, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Right? Like, Usually. if I say something you disagree with, and you'd be like, well, to a certain extent, but what you're saying true, is yeah. like, no, stupid. Here's yeah. what it really is. I'd be, I would be a wonderful <laughs> diplomat. Yeah. Um, I remember, okay, slight tangent. Uh-huh. Uh, no, sorry, by slight, I mean immense. Um, many, many years ago, I was, um, I was leading a, a Bible study, and I was co-leading it with somebody that I had not picked as my partner. Uh, he, he was sort of assigned to me. And this is somebody you know. By God? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> you know what? If that was the case, uh, maybe i go uh, Buddhist or something. Um, so, no, you actually know this person, and we won't uh, say his right. name or anything like that. But he was a bit... Uh, uh, not merely obnoxious, but also... We went to, went to school with this guy. Okay. Um, and... Uh, and there's this thing, I, I, all, everything I said was damage control for him, where someone would talk about like an interpretation of the Bible. And I don't know if you've read the Bible. Some of it is up for interpretation. Yeah. Uh, this guy was having none of it and he would just, so someone would say like, well, is it, is it like this? And he would say, no. And then I would say, well, now there are some people that say it could be, uh, that's not. I don't think so, but some people do think that uh, it's not. Some things are a definitive no. This is not one of them. I just spent so much time being like uh, like Oliver Platt and Bullworth, just constantly having to manage <laughs> and apologize for this right. guy. But then, and then eventually doing coke in the back room. Yes, that's the only way I could get through. Screaming it, about the the FC fucking CCC, <laughs> the favorite line in Bullworth. Um, I'm trying to think of who this person is that you're talking about. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll say after the show. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I just made a gesture. Yeah, I figured yeah. out who it is. All right. Um, where were we? Okay, so Wes picked 11 um, pieces of music. Thank you, Wes, for bearing with that. Yeah, talk. sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> talking around, talking shit about someone we know from college. Um, let's just jump right into 1964. And um, wait, let me say first. 
because I just showed up. Do we want to do some talking before we play the music? Or do we want to do, I say the title, we play the music, then, then Wes talks. Well, okay, here's the deal. Before we even get to any of the clips, and before we even decide that, I did want to just kind of, having, having heard all the clips and knowing, okay. knowing the arc that we're going to be following for this episode, I did want to address that a little bit. Okay. Because in listening to these clips, um, some of which I had heard before, some of which I had not, most of which I had not, um, it is interesting, Wes, the clips that you picked, because as I listened to all of them just in a row, mm-hmm. one right after another... You see the John Williams that you that we know. You see him emerge. You see hints of him early on, but then you see him by the end of it because you know by the end of the seventies, like that is the one we know. Not merely because it's from a movie that I'm more familiar with, but that's the one we know. And so, in your in your opinion, and of course, this is one where as we go along, the listeners will hear it too. Um, so as we go along, you can point to. A specific era and say that's the re that's when he became john williams the one that we know and here's why but in general what do you think about this period of his life when he started moving into like oscar nominated oscar winning territory and becoming the 50 time oscar uh nominee uh that sort of thing so of this of the section that we're talking about what's your overall view of that well i find it a really fascinating progression because that was the thing that John Williams was, was born in New York. His father was a, a jazz musician himself. And he actually worked with uh, Raymond Scott, who was a, a noted uh, sort of weird jazz composer. Many of his uh, songs and melodies were appropriated by Carl Stalling and used in numerous Warner Brothers cartoons. So most particularly, the, the one that everybody would know is Powerhouse. Oh, yeah. That's, that's Raymond Scott. Um, and then the family moved out here to Los Angeles, and John Williams graduated from North Hollywood High, and then <laughs> oh. got drafted, went into the Air Force. We got out of the Air Force in the mid-'50s, went back to New York, and started out as, as a jazz pianist. And he was out there performing with you know in, in clubs and with various uh, musicians. He started working out there with uh, Henry Mancini early on, and uh, so that's really that was sort of his his origins. There was as a jazz musician, as a jazz pianist, and then when he came out to uh, back to Los Angeles and started working as an orchestrator, mm-hmm. uh, working for various Hollywood composers like. Alfred Newman, Franz Waxman, Bernard Herrmann, mm-hmm. and he was also playing piano on some uh, film scoring sessions. Like we, he worked with uh, Henry Mancini on a few things. Like most uh, people would re- be familiar with the Peter Gunn theme. Mm-hmm. He played the piano on that, and then uh, Elmer Bernstein, his score for To Kill a Mockingbird, the piano on that. That's that's John Williams performing that piano. So. He's coming out of this sort of jazz background, but then and he comes out to Hollywood, and you got to work. Uh, unfortunately, this there's there's never been a whole lot of money in jazz, mm-hmm. <laughs> so obviously the, the a really good place to, to get going is to uh, go to work in the Hollywood studios and start working as uh, as an orchestrator. And I can I can well imagine that the work that he's doing with those guys would have an influence him uh, influence on him in some way. Uh, it's not like he didn't know anything about music because he had gone to Juilliard as well while he was uh, in New York at some point. Um, so you have him sort of starting out as this one thing and then he gets out to Hollywood and is basically surrounded by all of these film composers 
and you could just sort of get the feeling of him taking that on. But there is sort of a transitional phase mm-hmm. before he gets to the point where everybody is familiar with the kind of stuff that he's doing now. Yeah. But then you look in, into the 1960s, basically once you get to the early 70s, he's pretty much there. But in the 1960s, and also like his first real film score was for a B movie in 1959 called Daddy O, which people who might have seen it on parodied on uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 hmm. is sort of a hot rod film with the uh, rock and roll singing accordion player Dick Contino that uh, <laughs> James Elroy wrote a couple of short stories around. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's kind of interesting to hear that that sort of the jazz thing uh, that he was doing. He it's, there was definitely a jazz oriented score for Daddy O, and then. That leads into this first film, yeah. uh, The Killers, which was from uh, 1964. It was originally supposed to be a TV movie that, that Don Siegel directed with uh, Lee Marvin and Clue Gulliger, uh, John Cassavetes, Angie Dickinson, Ronald Reagan in his last screen performance. But the network took one look at this and said, this is too violent. We can't put this on TV. Teenagers are going to see this. So <laughs> then Universal just took it and they put it into the movies. So should I, I think now I'll say... The name, even though Wes just did, we'll play the thing, we'll come back, we'll talk about it. This is from 1964's The Killers. Now, the one thing I want to say up front is that the very first thing that you hear in that musical excerpt is actually Henry Mancini. From Touch of Evil. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why that's in the movie. I don't yeah. know why. I, I, at first I thought, well, wait, did Universal start all their movies that way at a certain point? I know they didn't. It's not like Pillow Talk started that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know why that's there. But basically, once the congas start, that's all John Williams. Just so you know. I, I thought you had sent me... Uh, the wrong clip and that for some reason it was horribly mislabeled uh, every step of the way, r- the wrong cover art. And I was just like, wow, Wes really dropped the ball on this one. Uh, and then, yeah, shortly after that initial, like, uh, you know, whatever you call that. Um, yeah. Once it starts and, and absolutely like it's all jazzy. And what's interesting to me as I was listening to it, 
when we heard when everybody heard the score for Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, who's this? Who's this John Williams?" Looking him able to adapt, uh, <laughs> and then it turns out, oh no, he was just returning. That's Admittedly, it had been a while for you know it had been a while since he'd done it, but he was just returning to where he started, which I thought was very. And the fact that he was able to do it so well is you know to his credit. But it's as I was listening to, the, I've never seen The Killers. Uh, oh, well, I've heard it's, it's wonderful, and listening to this made me want to see it. It's it's a fun movie, as the music indicates. It is a hard hitting crime drama film noir type movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it the original ver- screen version of The Killer is directed by Robert Syodmak in '46. I believe that was the guy who did it. That one I've seen. Yeah, and you can get both of them together on the Criterion Collection because yeah. they put mm-hmm. both of them together on DVD and I think now on Blu-ray and. I always recommend uh, Don Siegel's remake of The Killers, just if if for no other reason than to enjoy the sight of John Cassavetes punching Ronald Reagan in the face. <laughs> so enjoyable on multiple levels. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it really is brutal, uh, even for the '60s. Mm-hmm. So, and the music I think it reflects that. It's it's really just punchy and snappy. Uh, I I like that music a lot. So I thought that was that was a really kind of a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So should we move on then? Sure. To uh, I forgot to write down the year of the next one. Hold on. The next one is t- uh, three years later because we're skipping the TV entry. Yeah. If any listeners can guess what the TV entry is, they get an attaboy from me. Sure. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say it because... <laughs> okay. Go because ahead. It, well, the thing is because it comes into play later on. He did... See, I like this. Tyler told you no on this. <laughs> You're finding a way to talk about it anyway. Son of a we're bitch. We're just not going to play it. <laughs> no, I just want to say... The, the thing is is that he, in the 60s, he did theme songs for the, the one that I, that, I, that I sent to them. And I knew it wasn't going to be on the show because it is a TV theme and this is about movies. But it's just a great TV theme. One of the great ones of the 60s is the theme from Lost in Space. And he did that one, and he did one for The Time Tunnel, and he did one for Land of the Giants. And the thing, all three of those shows have in common is that they were all created and produced by Irwin Allen, who later went on in the 70s to make a big old splash in the genre of disaster films, which we will get to presently. Okay, so, um, I don't know about presently. Um, I've never seen this movie. I don't know, maybe this is a disaster movie, but (laughs) 1967's A Guide for the Married Man. It's kind of a disaster movie. Okay. <laughs> I, I swear this is the thing is at, at, at this point in the the mid to late sixties, uh, John Williams actually started scoring several comedies. Uh, some of them were unintentional, like Valley of the Dolls, uh, but then there were sort of intentional comedies, and there was more sophisticated fare, like. Oh man! Suddenly I'm blanking out on the name. Oh, How to Steal a Million. Mm. Yes, with Audrey Hepburn and uh-huh. Peter O'Toole. That's directed by William Wyler. Very sophisticated comedy. And then there are others that are less sophisticated. <laughs> Movies with titles like Not With My Wife, You Don't. That's the name of a movie. <laughs> that is the name of a movie that he scored. Okay, and then there was another one called uh, Penelope with, uh, with Natalie Wood as this sort of a flighty uh, young woman married to a banker, and she's also a kleptomaniac, and she's also somehow a master of disguise, and she disguises herself and robs her husband's bank, and then everybody is running around trying to find the money and the person who robbed the bank. If you want to know what kind of movie Penelope is, the, the poster art for the movie is just a sort of cartoon depiction of Natalie Wood wearing nothing but panties, holding two big bags of money over her chest. She doesn't actually appear like that in the movie. It's just the poster. Um, we did. Uh, I will. We'll play the guide from the Merry Man thing in a second. We we just did an episode on titles, and I wish we had talked about that 
60 strain of comedies that yeah. have what is it not with my, my wife I remember, I remember once flipping channels and catching and ended up watching the whole thing a Bob Hope movie called Boy Did I Get a Wrong Number oh yeah <laughs> yeah that was with, like, with Phyllis Diller I believe uh, yeah. yeah yeah what I like about the title you said West is that depending on where what word you emphasize it's not with my wife you don't or not with my wife you don't my sister maybe like that's it's it's a very different not with my wife you don't <laughs> yeah i will i do it every day all right uh let's that's a perfect setup let's play the music from a uh, guide sorry a guide for the married man Okay, I am sure you haven't seen this film. Uh, it's okay if you never see it because it is, really is one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Oh my! And not like David Lynch, Lady and the Radiator, disturbing, but it's just in terms of the mores and and the values that this movie has versus everything that's going on in the outside world. Walter Matthau plays a guy who's an executive in some building full of executives or some shit. I don't know. And he's happily married to this woman played by Ingrid Stevens. She's beautiful. She's caring. She's doting. She's sensitive. She's in every way the ideal wife. And yet he's thinking about cheating on her. 
And his best friend, played by Robert Morse, is uh, he's been cheating on his wife fairly regularly for some time now. And so he's sort of like the Re- Virgil. He recommends it. Yeah, well, he's the movie. The whole movie is Robert Morse giving Walter Matthau all the do's and don'ts and the how to's of how to have an extramarital affair. That's what the movie is. And every rule that he gives, everything that he says about how what guys get right and what guys get wrong, they're all illustrated by these allegedly comedic vignettes that star a big old cast of uh, cameos from from comedy people. Jack Benny is in one, Art Carney, Lucille Ball, Sid Caesar. Jane Mansfield's last film appearance is in this <laughs> film, and I'm sure nobody feels good about that. But it's like, and I'm going to spoil the ending for you because I'd rather spoil the ending for you than you see this movie and it spoil your day. Walter Matthau is all set to cheat on his wife when he's got this girl and he's in the motel and all of a sudden there's a ruckus outside and oh, what do you know? It's Robert Morse getting caught cheating and Walter Matthau panics and he, he runs back to his wife and it's a happy ending for everybody. But holy smokes. I mean, this is 1967. Okay, think about what a turbulent decade the 1970s was. I mean, the 1960s. I'm sorry. You know, the black people are agitating for civil rights. Women are agitating for equal rights. People are protesting the war in Vietnam. The cops are beating the shit out of kids on the Sunset Strip because they want to stay out past curfew so they can see the Buffalo Springfield at the whiskey. And meanwhile, here in their little walled Hollywood garden, la 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 la. Let's you know what kind of bullshit can we throw up on a couple of hundred screens? This day? How out of touch can you be with this sort of tripe? It's just it was so unsettling watching this movie and thinking, uh, people are supposed to laugh at this. And Gene Kelly directed it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so well, just uh, thumbs down all around. But t- about the song, <laughs> yes, yes, I like the song. Uh, I heard the song a long time before I ever saw the movie because I've been a fan of the Turtles. That's the band who performs this song. Um, everybody may remember their super smash hit, Happy Together. Yep. That's them. Um, and I just, I like the song and it shows how good John Williams is at crafting a pop song. You know, the lyrics were done by a guy named Leslie Brickus, who has done a lot of lyrics for, he's, he's worked with John Williams before. He, in fact, they did the, the theme song for Penelope, which I just mentioned. They will work on the, the, uh, the song, Can You Read My Mind for Superman, which was like the only thing I had, I found wrong with that movie. How do you insert that sappy song in a Superman movie? <laughs> and why didn't they get somebody to sing it? Nothing makes a song sound worse than reciting the lyrics instead of singing them. <laughs> but, um, Tell that to William Shatner. I know. I was going to say, <laughs> unless, of course, it's William Shatner. No, no. Even when it's all right, yeah, maybe, even, maybe, maybe more so. That stuff. But, but that's the thing: is that this song is a well-crafted song, and I like the way the melody goes because that's part of the thing that that really sort of interested me about it is it the the melody sort of goes in a place in a direction that I didn't really anticipate it going, and I I like that. I'm always on the lookout for something like that. So. I thought that the song is a really good song and I like the way that the turtles perform it. Unfortunately, now it's like having seen the movie, I can no longer think about the song in the same way because I associate it with this terrible movie. But I think that it's fascinating to see how John Williams is great with jazz. He's also great with a, with a nice pop song. And then you move on and you see again, he's going to develop into this guy who can do all kinds of really great symphonic works and in fact, the very next thing that we're going to play is something that I think, it, even though it is a symphonic score, which we're all familiar with from him, I think it's a symphonic score in a genre that a lot of people haven't really heard from him that much. All right. All right. And what is that, David? Let's play a selection <laughs> from 1972's The Cowboys. 
The Cowboys is a pretty good film from the early 70s. Uh, Mark Rydell directed it. And it's basically it's sort of it's a, a Western that answers the question, what if Howard Hawks had made Red River with a bunch of schoolboys instead of experienced uh, ranch hands helping John Wayne? Because that's what the movie is. John Wayne is a guy who's got to do a cattle drive and all his his cattle hands, they take off because somebody found gold and everybody just runs. Now, where is the gold? Oh, I don't know. Someplace far away, I guess. Oh, okay. Because they all just left. It's, it's not in them, there are hills? Uh, well, it might be. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see a lot of hills in that, that area. But, Pretty flat. Uh, so his, his uh, old buddy, Slim Pickens, somehow suggests, oh, well, how about getting some of these schoolboys over at the school? And it, it sounds preposterous. Frankly, it is preposterous. But that's what happens. Mm-hmm. He just gets a bunch of school kids. Some of them is like young. They got to be like, the youngest one's got to be like around nine years old up into their teens, uh, including Robert Carradine, his first film role hmm. is in that film, which is kind of a fun little circle there because early in John Wayne's career, he did Stagecoach with John Carradine. And now here he is coming full circle with one of John Carradine's kids. Um, so, and uh, Bruce Stern is good, as always, as a, uh, a slimy Western bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird at the end because... Uh, I can easily imagine many modern audiences having a great deal of ambivalence about a bunch of young boys shooting a bunch of bad guys in a Western. In any context, frankly, it would be kind of questionable, but that's what happens in the movie. Um, But how many John Williams Westerns are there? I can't. Well, there's uh, hang on now. There's the Cowboys. I seem to recall that one. (laughs) Uh, Beyond that, I can't think of many. Yeah, and he does a really good job with it. It's It's got that great sort of boisterous Western Copeland-esque quality that I think you are going to find in a lot of the best Western scores, like uh, you know, like The Magnificent Seven and uh, How the West Was Won, No Relation, and things like that. I think that the Cowboys score <laughs> is really good. I think, and, and again, it's it, him getting the opportunity to flex his muscles in a genre that we don't necessarily associate with John Williams very much at all. And it's a shame that he did, doesn't do more Westerns or he didn't get to do more Westerns. All right. Well, the, he's still working, right? <clears throat> I think he's going to be all right. <laughs> he, he could be doing, he could do more Westerns, right? It does feel, I, I do wonder this, like how much control, I mean, obviously a, a composer, especially at his level can say yes or no to things, but can a composer like put himself out there to like a producer or something like that and say, Hey, I'd like to score a Western. So, uh, if you're making one, keep me in mind. Like how, how does a, can a composer seek out the movie that he wants to, you know, work on? Well, I bet somebody of his stature could, but I think a large part of the problem is how many Westerns are being made. That's true. The minute I said it, I was just like, there's, oh, there's yeah. so few and it's a shame. Uh, I, I still think that it's a fairly durable genre. It's yeah. one of my favorite genres. I wish there were more of them, but you know, there, there's still maybe, maybe one a year. Yeah. Well, we had, um, uh, one of our writers on the website wrote about the Westerns of 2015. Cause there mm-hmm. were, if you, look below the surface there yeah. were actually a number of them there's obviously there's a hateful eight and the revenant to some extent to some um, extent there's uh slow west was one that he mentioned you got your bone tomahawk bone tomahawk yeah i feel like i'm leaving some out but there were yeah westerns are still a thing you just kind of have to go looking for them a little more i think yeah i guess yeah hateful eight was a, a high profile western and then the rest are just kind of there if you if you are looking well for the revenant was pretty high profile couldn't i guess but i don't immediately think of it as a western no neither is it do because I. it's wintry is that why 
Uh, uh, Nick and Mrs. Miller is wintering, uh, wintry. I think it's just, I view that as more of like a, almost like a Jeremiah Johnson mountain man survival type of thing. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. I think of that movie as a bearskin rug chasing a bag of dirty laundry across an old print of <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, right, we should move on. To move on yeah. to uh, uh, for reals disaster movies to 1974 now and the Towering Inferno. Let's play something from that right now.
Now, this happens to be my favorite disaster movie. Uh, I saw it when it came out, and this is one of the movies that was produced uh, by Irwin Allen, who basically he went from TV to suddenly becoming the disaster movie king in the 1970s, although he fell pretty hard. First, before this one, was The Poseidon Adventure in 72, which was also scored by John Williams, and that's a really good score. Uh, and then two years later, you had this one and Earthquake, which uh, was produced by Universal. And John Williams did the score for that one as well. So he did two disaster movies in the same year, Earthquake and The Towering Inferno, or as we called to them in those days, Shake and Bake. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the Towering Inferno is just, uh, it's the classic disaster template where you get a whole bunch of famous people into a confined space and it's like, the one, but it's the most wonderful confined space imaginable, and everything is perfect, and nothing could go wrong, and yoink, something goes wrong, and next thing you know, uh, everybody starts dying. So, and it's uh, it's such a great movie with uh, filled with stars like uh, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and uh, Faye Dunaway and William Holden. Uh, O.J. Simpson is in there before mm-hmm. everything went wrong for him, um, and uh, it's just it's got all that kind of. 70s melodrama and uh, costumes and uh, the one thing about it that I find most regrettable is that that movie won the Oscar for cinematography. This is the same year as The Godfather Part 2, everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fred Camp won the Oscar for cinematography. It, it should never, never have happened. The other weird thing about The Towering Inferno is that both that and The Poseidon Adventure, those are two disaster movies in a row that were scored by John Williams that both had songs in them that he did not write that won Oscars. That's, I, I don't even know why he didn't have a hand in writing the songs, but I know that he didn't. Okay. So the, the morning after, right? That's the, the morning one after was from the Poseidon adventure. Okay. And then the one in towering Inferno is called, we may never love like this again. Oh yeah. Cause I guess one of us is going to be on fire soon. I, <laughs> I, I do songs. I there's some hope in it. Yeah. We may. Yeah. yeah. We're probably going to die. So we may never love like this again, yeah. but you never know. That's, that's one of those songs where there's a lot of, there's a lot packed into the parentheses. Um, <laughs> I always think of, uh, um, Vic Chestnut in sling blade mm-hmm. talking about uh, the song that he's written. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what the song is called, but he has, the song title has parentheses in it, and yeah. it's like it has parentheses, you know, like they do. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and who's the guy who, as he's, I believe he's citing like a poem, and at one point goes dot dot dot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta watch that. Again. I know um, that's such a great movie. Well, okay, I did have a question. So, so I've been obsessed with looking at whether John Williams has done any westerns. Uh, have um, you found any aside from that one? Uh, Rosewood, 1997. Does that count? Oh, okay. Uh, that's Western-ish. It's of the period. Yeah, thereabouts. Okay. Um, so my question is this. Already in the progression we've seen, I mean, we go from like this this jazzy, hard, noir score to, you know, uh, this a Western and then to a disaster film. Like, those are three very different genres. And... And maybe you can't answer this, but like, how did it get to the point where people thought, oh, we got this towering Inferno film? I mean, I guess I guess there's Erwin um, uh, Allen. I guess there's the, the connection. But like, I'm, I'm always fascinated when somebody says, well, we've got uh, we've got this giant ensemble cast, a huge budget. This is going to be basically an epic you know who'd be great to do the music for this epic is the guy who made this uh, jazzy little uh, score here and did the Lost in Space music. You know, uh, 
how do you think they arrive at that decision? Cause I'm sure that once that happened, like with, with these big movies where it's very orchestral and stuff, that is what got his career on a very specific trajectory. Well, I think it, it goes back to what everybody keeps saying. A lot of it is who, you know, the thing mm-hmm. he already had a relationship with Irwin Allen because yeah. remember he did those three theme songs for the, the television shows in the sixties. So Obviously, they must have got along together very well. So then when it come 1972, it's time to make the Poseidon Adventure. That's probably just the first guy that popped into Irwin Allen's uh, brain. Is it this, this guy that I worked with before? He did solid music for me in the past. Let me bring him into this feature film. And he acquitted himself very well. And there does there is definitely an element to John Williams that when people work with him, they're like, this worked well. I want to work with him again. Maybe he, along with delivering a good product, maybe he's also just easy to work with. Yeah, I'm sure he is. You never hear stories about him like you hear about Bernard Herrmann, just, you know, yelling at people and just breaking off relationships with them for, you know, for good and all. And of course then that leads into the, his relationship with Steven Spielberg because mm-hmm. you know, his first film for Spielberg was that same year, 1974. They did the Sugarland Express and then that started a whole line of films that they did together because they got along well and Steven Spielberg liked the score that John Williams did for that movie. It's a good score. I don't think it's one of his best works, but it's, it's good stuff. Uh, we didn't include any of it here. <laughs> So there's just there's so much John Williams stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, you're, by mentioning Steven Spielberg, you're sort of kind of getting into the John Williams that we know. Mm. Yeah. And we are about to get into the main John Williams that we that yeah. we know. Maybe. Yeah. And, Although and a the, slightly lesser version of the main John Williams we know. Yeah, but that's part of the thing is that that relationship with Steven Spielberg that was probably one of the biggest things right there because. Nobody knew in 1974 that Steven Spielberg was going to be who he came to be. Mm. But he did become that, and he took John Williams with him because they got along together and he liked the work that he did. And then, because Steven Spielberg had a good relationship with George Lucas, George Lucas saying, I I need somebody to do some music for this movie. Steven Spielberg says, oh, I think I got a guy for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, right, it, that's how we and I got the order wrong. Sorry. Uh, this is not lesser John Williams, uh, what we're about to hear. I'm, I'm, I skipped ahead a little bit. Oh, okay. Also... Because I was obsessed with looking at, at okay. westerns, the only post, the only post the Cowboys true western western that he did is Arthur Penn's The Missouri Breaks, which I've never seen, but I've always wanted to. Is that with Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson? Okay, um, yeah. Have you seen? Uh, the no, Missouri I haven't Breaks? seen that one either. Interesting. It's, yeah, it's a seems like a great pool of talent. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, but, but let's move on to the thing we're here to really talk about. Um, the the re- maybe the for most people the. The, the movie you most associate with John Williams? Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 1977's Star Wars. Thank you. 
there's not a whole lot we can say about John Williams and Star Wars anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so many other people have covered won... it before we did. And, yeah. and we've done it. Yeah. But I did want to call attention to this specific piece of music for this specific scene. This is the scene where Han Solo and Luke and Ben Kenobi and the droids and Chewie get away from, from Moss Eisley spaceport and they're pursued by the, the Empire. And the music is very suspenseful. Now, the thing is, is that for everybody, just about pretty much everybody I'm talking to, everything in the Star Wars saga is a foregone conclusion. You know they're going to get away. But in 1977, we didn't know they were going to get away. Mm-hmm. And that music was really <laughs> pulse-pounding and suspenseful. And look, we already knew. We've seen how big the Empire is. We've yeah. seen how massive their ships are. So maybe they weren't going to get away. You know, Han Solo, you know, talked a good game about his spaceship, but really at that stage in the movie, all we really knew about him was that he really price gouged his customers and that he shot first. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, we knew that for sure. Yeah. So there was every chance that they could have been caught or shot down and the music is just so suspenseful and it enhances that feeling that maybe this isn't going to turn out very well at all for anybody. So that's why I chose this specific piece of music because that's the thing that really great film music can do. It can really help enhance that mood that you want to convey to the audience, which again, like I said, now we all know what's going to happen. So you don't necessarily, it may not necessarily feel as exciting to people as it did back when it first existed and nobody knew what it was when they were walking in. But that that music was a big help. It's really just incredible, exciting, pulse pounding music. It's one of my favorite pieces from that score. And you know what's what's odd? Uh, I I would venture to say you guys are correct. And Star Wars is what people think of when they think of John Williams. My first instinct is Jaws. Um, just because I don't know why. Just uh, maybe because I guess I grew up with Star Wars, obviously. But uh, but I watched a lot of Jaws when I was a kid, and I just feel like that is a score that obviously this the score for Star Wars is pretty good, <laughs> but. When people talk about like scores making the film, yeah, uh, people talk about Psycho, right? And they talk a lot about Jaws, and and just that his a guy who was known for like really, uh, although not known yet, but like a guy who would come to be known for like really complex orchestration and stuff like that. Uh, when it comes time to make this shark thing, actually simplifies things, and because he realizes that's more primal and more frightening, and I feel like that's genius and uh, and so i feel like for me the primary john williams score uh is jaws you know which i think might take us might um, move us on or uh, not, not yet, yet. not no, yet we, yeah but uh uh I, I for me i i i feel like this conversation has come up before i don't know if it's on the podcast or off the podcast i sort of think without even thinking about it i, I split john williams work into theme songs and then all his other stuff yeah because when it comes to theme songs i think which are the ones that stick with people the most because they're repeated throughout the movies but um i know this is a lot newer uh, a lot uh, more recent but the the harry potter theme is maybe my favorite theme in movie history um it so gets that that the magic, but also the danger of the Harry Potter world. And there's a playful quality it, to it, but it's playful in like a Rumpelstiltskin kind of yeah. like, uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of, uh, impish way. Yeah, I'm going to take your firstborn. <laughs> yeah. If you don't do um, what I want. I, I really, really love that music. And just those movies, 
I don't fanboy out about as much stuff as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Harry, Harry Potter movies were things I would go to midnight the night it opened, you know, and like the lights going down and that theme coming up always like it was a very for 10 years of my life. It was a very exciting thing. That is a th- I miss it. I do miss the event of going to see the latest Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. That music, it's just it it not unlike the beginning of Star Wars, you know, where it's just it starts quiet and then there's this big boisterous thing and you know like holy shit I'm watching a Star Wars movie with Harry Potter it's yeah. it, there there's different variations of it as it starts but once you hear it's like all right this yeah. is I mean I can't believe I'm here we should probably save that for part 3 of indeed, this. indeed um but as far as other themes I also want to say the Indiana Jones theme I at this point probably associate more with the indiana jones ride at disneyland because i've <laughs> honestly probably been on that ride more certainly more recently and maybe even more often than yeah. i've seen indiana jones movies it's a pretty great ride it's a pretty good ride all right uh let's move on to another another big one is, is this the one you were saying is lesser no i was going to say that i think if i i don't have it in front of me but i think the one after this oh, okay. is like a lesser main john williams okay so this is also from 1977 and we're going to be talking about, uh, let's play a selection from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Thank you. 
Now, here is something we absolutely have not heard from John Williams before. This, I think, really falls under the heading of avant-garde music. Mm-hmm. It's something that I think is kind of unexpected, maybe, for some people. Um, and it just goes to show how good he is at working in any idiom that you throw at him. Now, there is definitely there is a, some, uh, a full symphonic score in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, particularly the way that... In the end credits, if you bother to stay around for them, the way the music builds to a crescendo at the end of, of that movie, it builds up in a way that it, when it finally breaks, it almost moves me to tears. It's so beautiful. But this piece of music is just one of the most remarkable compositions of the 1970s, if not all of you know film, because not only is it just a weird, atonal, semi-electronic kind of thing that has no sort of recognizable melody except for like, you know, the five notes, which is not much of a melody, really, truth be told. But also it is music being used for a very specific purpose in the film in a way that a lot of people don't necessarily use music. And that is to provide a form of communication Mm. in this film there. This, this music is meant to be, us earthlings communicating with this alien intelligence and we're doing it through music, which is such a marvelous and noble idea because music really is just one of the greatest things that the human race has to offer. As far as I'm concerned, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I have a whole goddamn podcast about music. (laughs) Um, The, the the idea of trying to communicate with an alien species through music is just, it's really just such a beautiful thing. And, I think it really is kind of the only the kind of thing that only a filmmaker like Spielberg and a composer like John Williams could come together and pull right. off in the way that they did. And the progression of this piece is really interesting because you hear I I don't know the the instruments, I apologize, but you hear like the light flute sounding thing and it's doing the same thing over and over again and then you hear like this tuba sounding thing not doing the same thing and then eventually they're doing the same thing it is it's literally from a communication standpoint it's like we're not saying the same thing and now we're we're on the same page right uh it reminds me that sequence which i love i love that movie i love that sequence and it reminds me this is these movies don't get compared very often but it always makes me think of the virgin suicides <laughs> when they talk they to play, they play records back i was gonna forth. say no. that's why i was gonna mention that because <laughs> yeah. that's one of my favorite scenes as well when they, these, these characters they are the girls are forbidden to talk to these boys and the boys know it and they don't want to get the girls in trouble so they just pick up the phone and start playing records at each other and it's so beautiful that's mm. one of my favorite scenes in the movie no that's my favorite scene in the movie mm. i love that yeah it's so great yeah that that's that's the kind of thing that that they were doing it's it's those two scenes could be put side by side together and maybe some people would go what what the hell are you doing but i think other <laughs> people would say yes i see the point you're making yeah all right uh we should move on all right is this the one you want to talk shit about uh <laughs> what this is, i'm not you, talking you've shit you've been like <laughs> champing at the bit to 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 appreciate you saying champion, you're not chomping. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, to uh, to just slag off one of these, and you like so so much so that you keep jumping the gun. So is this the one that you hate? 
what is it? Let's hear a selection from 1978's The Fury. Well, is it or isn't it? No. Okay. Yeah, I didn't think it was. <laughs> yeah. But uh, actually, I loved this bit. I yeah. haven't seen the film, but I lo- I loved this. Uh, oh, okay. Well, this yeah, you jumped the gun by a lot. <laughs> I know. I just I kept forgetting uh, all these other things. I'll tell you why when we get there. Well, okay. this this scene uh, this music accompanies the the finale for the film, and uh, so to give you an idea of uh, what what a big finale it is. And this is a sort of a horror movie that was directed by Brian De Palma. It came after uh, Carrie and Obsession. They were both released in 1976. And the thing is that you may notice that there is a sort of similarity in this music with Bernard Herrmann music. Yep, and. And I think that was a very deliberate thing. I'm willing to bet that De Palma asked for it because it was Bernard Herrmann's penultimate score was for Obsession. That was the last, the second to last thing that Bernard Herrmann wrote. Uh, then he did Taxi Driver, and then he died. The only thing is, uh, Obsession came out after Taxi Driver. It, Obsession was done by 1975, but it got delayed in release because the distributor was concerned about uh, a couple of plot points in the movie being unsavory to uh, movie audiences. That's all I'm going to say about it. Just go and watch Obsession. It's a really good movie. And The Fury is a really good movie. Um, and that's sort of a, a, a weird movie, but uh, you know, Andrew Stevens is, is a, plays a kid who has uh, psychic powers, and he gets taken away from his dad, played by uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, and he gets taken away because John Cassavetes uh, takes the kid away. And Son just, of a bitch. Because John Cassavetes is part of a, <laughs> a, a fiendish uh, government uh, uh, program to grab all the psychic kids and, and use them for evil. So, as you can guess, uh, things go psychically wrong. And, uh, and so, I'm sure that Brian De Palma, having worked with Bernard Herrmann, and what a glorious experience that must have been, uh, he probably turned to John Williams and said, can you give me something like this? And John Williams said, well, yeah, sure I can. And why wouldn't he? Like I said earlier, uh, he'd been orchestrating for Bernard Herrmann in the 60s. 
So uh, I, there's no doubt in my mind he could very easily toss off uh, something that sounds like Bernard Herrmann. Not that this score is tossed off. I think this is a very good score. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think it's a pretty good horror movie. Uh, the, the ending in particular is just, uh, you don't necessarily see it coming. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But uh, it's, it's R-rated for a reason. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Okay, did you have anything else you wanted to get out of your system before... We really get into the no, shit. No, let's... <laughs> okay, let's move on. Okay, this is now the second of what will be three 1978 yeah. uh, scores is 1978's Jaws 2.
Now, this is the one, by the way. Okay. Now, the thing is, uh, oh, I can't because, wait for Tyler because to let we loose. all know Jaws. Both barrels. We know Jaws <laughs> so much, which sort of goes to your point about maybe maybe it is uh, more recognizable and, and more beloved and better known than Star Wars. But that's why I didn't include any music from the original Jaws. But also because even Jaws Two is a vastly inferior film. I'm never going to say it's as good as the original, but. Some of the music that John Williams uh, returned to to compose for Jaws Two is very good. I think the opening music for this uh, this movie is very lovely and mysterious. All right, here we go. <laughs> After hearing the 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 bit, which I believe that is what we heard, right? The opening, yes, from Jaws Two. Um, after hearing that, I immediately realized this is great. I need to watch Jaws 2 again, which I did. Oh, okay. Uh, I watched there it yesterday. There was your mistake. Yeah. No, I know. So <laughs> when I say, when I say uh, lesser John Williams, I don't mean as far as the product. What I think is interesting is that people will th- – like, it, it, to me, it's almost – okay, now, the first Jaws score, I think, is better, quote-unquote, uh, uh, question mark, with, uh, than the Jaws 2 score. But I will say it, remi- it reminds me of Batman and Batman Returns. When people think of Danny Elfman's Batman music, they will think of the first one. Mm. But I think he, he's able to take more risks and, and expound upon it in the second one. But, no, but very few people would ever think of that. So that's what I mean is like okay. the choice here to talk about Jaws 2 I think is a good one, even though most people would think, why talk about Jaws 2 when you can just talk about the first one? And I think because he's, he is doing some really interesting things with the score. I have to it's, say, this was a letdown. I'm sorry. I was. I never said I was going to bash it. Um, no, I I built it up. Yeah, and I you did, and I'm let down. Yeah, you're not a mind reader, David. I'm not Ma- a mind reader, Tyler. Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I I love the score. I thought it was re- maybe not. Now I love it. I loved it because in listening to that and then in watching the movie, I realized like there's some really good stuff going on with this with this score, and he's doing slightly different things, which I think is because. Even though the story is very similar, uh, oh yeah, That's you got to find course, the differences where you. They can. were definitely trying to sort of do a carbon copy, but then John Williams was just like, "Well, no, I don't have to do that. I'm yeah. going to go and do this." And it's one of those scores that actually makes the movie a little better than it deserves to be. Yeah, you know, sort of like a Jerry Goldsmith score for the the, the first Star Trek movie, which mm-hmm. you know just. That movie just went wrong on a number of levels, mostly because they were locked into a Christmas 1979 release date, and they didn't have a finished script in like by oh I don't know summer of 1979 maybe, and but Jerry Goldsmith's score holds together scenes that have no right to hold together yeah. at all. Yeah, it's it really is a it's one of the things that I do love about uh, a really good score is it can be a unifying thing. I, like you said, a movie that that seems disjointed and it seems tonally all over the place as far as the scenes themselves or performances or whatever, the music can bring them all together and seem like a fully formed whole. And, and in watching jaws too, like I will say just in general, and we'll be talking about it the next time we do a movie journal. Um, it surprised me because there are elements to it that I think, uh, to the movie in general that I think are very good, but it is, it's interesting how much the absence of Spielberg, how much of a difference that makes. Because a lot of the same cast, same composer, same writers, same shark. Well, not exactly, but just all the elements are same location. All the elements are there. 
except Steven Spielberg and admittedly Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. I think it does suffer from that. But um, yeah. well, one of them couldn't come back. I mean, that's true. It's, it, well, they could do like a like a like a city slickers thing and uh, Quince. Uh, no, I guess no. Shaw was dead by then. I think actually. Um, but uh, yeah, it's but that score I think is operating. That score deserves a better movie. Yeah, like if. If you wanted an actual, like, really good Jaws 2, you listen to that score and imagine the movie that might have been. Okay, we can move on. Okay, let's move on. Uh, I'm very excited um, to, to listen to this one again and hear, hear West's thoughts on the final 1978 entry, Superman.
Now, here's another instance where John Williams composed a theme, in this case for the, the Superman film, that is so iconic and so beloved, I didn't bother playing it. Mm-hmm. Because right. we're, we're, all not, we're all familiar with it. And to the extent that they used it for like the next 28 years in every other Superman movie that came after that. You know, they just, nobody, nobody even tried to come up with something else. They just said, well, well, we can't top this. I guess we're bringing it with us. <laughs> so, but, so in this case, I really wanted to focus on one piece of music for, that was made for one specific scene. And this is a, the movie overall is great. And I think this scene is very good, but the music totally elevates it. And it's the scene where the young Clark Kent is out there in the wheat field and Ma Kent comes over and, and he's saying goodbye because he's going off to find his super destiny. And it's shot in this, this beautiful waving field of wheat and a beautiful cloudy sky, just exquisitely photographed by the late Jeffrey Unsworth, who didn't even live to see the finished film. That's how long they were shooting the damn thing. Um, and there's only just a few, just a handful of dialogue, just like a few lines between these two actors. What carries it is the music. And the music is just one of the most impossibly beautiful pieces of John Williams film music that you were ever going to find. And also, I want you to think about how it contrasts with another location, because this, is, this piece is very specific to the location of Smallville. When you think about how the film opens with, mm-hmm. uh, on the planet Krypton, and you have that Krypton theme, da, 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 da. Now think about how that's a very stately and regal theme yeah. as befits this, this advanced race far out in space that can afford to send their child to another planet before they go kablooey. Whereas the Smallville theme, it's, it's got this very plaintive and innocent quality to it that befits Smallville, a small place, where the, the small town in the middle of America where you have these, these two people, Ma and Pa Kent, who have these classic small town all American values, and they find this kid from outer space and say, well, I guess this is what we're doing, or we're going to raise this kid. And uh, just the beauty of this music and the heartbreaking quality of you know, seeing you know, a boy leaving home and you know, leaving his mom behind in this, this beautiful locale, the music carries that forward in such a smashing way. Uh, it's just unparalleled it's incomparable i i can look at that one scene over and over again for like a day you could put it on a wall in a museum <laughs> and people would just stop and look at it and go wow was it that andrew wyeth who did that it's just, it's it is art this is how cinema can be art hmm. wow i want to watch uh superman again like you yeah. wanted to watch shows too again because i do love superman and I will say real quick um, to give a little plug to uh, to your show. You are you are going to be doing an episode, or is it a series of episodes about the Batman music and the Superman music? Well, it's going to be a two two episodes. Okay, and that will probably be in the middle of it by the time this episode gets released. Just up to the running up to the release of Batman v Superman. Uh, dawn of whatever it is they're doing. Uh, I just thought it would be a good opportunity to examine uh, Batman music through the the, the ages and uh, Superman music through the ages. Just just for fun, just to see, uh, just for purposes of comparison and entertainment, and hopefully getting people to listen to my show. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on into 1979 and hear a selection from Dracula.
If you haven't seen the 1979 version of Dracula, it's as Dracula movies go, it's good. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be as good as the, the early 30s classic. It's not even as good as Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. But uh, it's got very nice uh, uh, English locations. Uh, Sean Williams's music, I think, is, as you can hear there, it was uh, suitably uh, uh, melodramatic and gothic. Yeah. And Frank Langella is good in the movie. The problem, I think, that I have with him, it was not his fault necessarily, was the hair. Um, see, have you seen uh, Saturday Night Fever? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, so picture John Travolta's hair in that movie. <laughs> okay, now, John Badham, who directed Saturday Night Fever, uh, I, I feel like he just looked at the massive success of Saturday Night Fever and said, well, it's got to be the hair. <laughs> so then when he, it came time for him to direct his follow-up, which is Dracula, he just took oh, that I'm same not. hair and put it on Frank Langella because that's what his hair looks like in this movie, everybody. <laughs> it just it just seems out of place in a movie that's taking place in the 1800s and Frank Langella looks like some goomba from Queens. That's <laughs> that's what's going on. And then also the other problem is Laurence Olivier, you know, I mean bless his heart, but it's just uh he was in battling illness for the last two decades of his life. And Dracula here comes right at the midpoint of that. And he just wasn't looking as hale and hearty as he did in the past. So you see him in this movie as Van Helsing and it's like, Oh no, (laughs) if this is Van Helsing, we're all going to be vampires very soon. Everybody. (laughs) I don't think this guy has the upper body strength to push a wooden stake through an angel food cake, much less Dracula. Holy shit. So, um, but there's, I think the, the, the production design and the cinematography and the music, I think they're very good. Frank Langella's performance as Dracula, I think he's, he's very, got a sort of seductive thing going on there. Hmm. But the hair is a distraction. So what are you going to do? And I, I, I've not seen that version of Dracula, but in listening to the music, again, it is, it's John Williams. One of the reasons that I'm, that I'm happy that we're splitting this up um, into likely three parts is that you have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, guys, I'll be right back. Um, is that it does allow us to talk about scores that if we were trying to cram all of John Williams into one episode, we probably wouldn't be listening to the score from Dracula. And Mm -hmm. the, the thing that, that I'm, that I'm getting from this chunk of, of music that we're hearing is that he he is much he's much more adaptable than people think now you know think people think of you know wonderful music but also like big orchestrations and stuff like this and there is there is a lavish quality to his score in Dracula but it does feel old world it fe- you could take this music and put it in the Todd Browning Dracula yeah and it would fit it would fit very well. Yep. It sounds, again, it sounds old world, but lavish uh, and gothic. And it just, and it, it doesn't, if, if you had played that for me and said, hey, who, who composed that? I probably would not have immediately said John Williams. Um, and I think that's to his credit because he was able to, I would say the same thing about the Catch Me If You Can score. Um, he is able to adapt to what the filmmaker needs. And I think eventually it's entirely possible that Hollywood started to adapting. They started adapting to what John Williams, uh, is known for as opposed to vice versa. But this is an example, I think of, of him just, I think hitting out of the park. I thought it sounded like one of the, one of the things that I'm happy about every time we do one of these, uh, episodes and you send us music is like, well, now I have it. That's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah. I think, if any comparison could be made as far as the Dracula score, I think it does sound sort of vaguely reminiscent of Miklos Roja, 
who was just very good at creating those sort of sweeping melodramatic themes. Uh, that's, that's the person that I think of when I listen to this score. It sort of reminds me of that guy a little bit. All right. I, how many do we have left? Just, just one more. Just one. All right. Just one more. Like, uh, like Jaws 2, mm-hmm. this is a, a, not, a, not a super highly regarded movie, I think. I think much, that's fair to say. Much maligned, would you say, is yeah. a uh, alliterative uh, cliche to apply uh, to this one. Um, but it's, as I'm sure we'll agree, is still a very good piece of music, right? Sure, absolutely. That's why you picked it. Okay, uh, let's listen to something from 1979's 1941.
Yeah, 1941 is not an entirely successful movie. It just, in general, the subgenre of epic comedy is something that I have never taken to. There is not one epic comedy that works for me 100%. Some of them come closer than others. Get, let's uh, give some examples. Well, uh, the most obvious example is it's a mad, 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 mad world, world, right. world, world, which <laughs> I just, there's only two moments that I've ever found myself laughing out loud, and the rest of it is just why are all these famous people running around yelling at each other and crashing into things? And that's the template for epic comedies. That's all it is. It's a bunch of famous people gathered together, yelling at each other and running into things. It's like a funny uh, towering inferno. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so nobody so, dies at the end. You know, I uh, guess, is it just have to do with runtime? Like what, what makes it an epic comedy? Well, they're, for starters, there is the all-star cast factor. Oh, okay. The, the running time is also part of it. There is the fact that they're spending enormous sums of money. Okay, uh, so is The Wolf of Wall Street an epic comedy? You know, maybe it is. Because I'm trying to think of ones that I like, and I like <laughs> that one, and it's, what, two hours and 40 minutes or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't thought of it in terms of epic comedies, but you, know, it's just, you have a point there. It could be. Okay. I I was, don't necessarily, there's a good one. I was, was going to say, like, maybe it wouldn't count because it's about this one guy, but then I realized, well, Lawrence of Arabia is about one guy, and that's <laughs> as epic as you get. <laughs> no, I think... Uh, the Great Race probably comes the closest to being successful as epic comedies go. And even that one, it just sort of, the, the energy starts flagging in the third act, which is a shame. Once they get into this whole, you know, deal with you know, Jack Lemmon and his double, and, and it's like, why is this happening? Shouldn't we all be going someplace? It's a great race, not the great sit around and then have a sword <laughs> fight with somebody. And it's just once they get to the part where they have the, the, the biggest pie fight sequence ever filmed for a Hollywood movie then the things start to pick up. It's picking up, but it's too little too late because you let everything slow down. So, and then you get to 1941, which is just, it's a mess as far as I'm concerned. There's just so much volume. Uh, there's, there's explosions in the credits, everybody. In the end credits <laughs> for 1941, there's just explosions going off for no reason at all. It's like, well, we have this stuff lying around. Well, I, well, maybe, I guess we should blow it up. Let's just use it. You know, we spent over $30 million on this goddamn thing. We might as well get to uh, get value for money. That's $30 million uh, in 1979. Money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's about as much as they spent on Heaven's Gate. But the difference is, 1941 did make money. It didn't make nearly as much money as they were hoping it would make in terms of a guy like Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. But it didn't, I, don't, I really don't think it lost money, but it just didn't make nearly as much money as they thought it would make. Um, but, now, here again, I think if anybody is familiar with anything uh, as far as the music for 1941, it would be The March, which is another really great John Williams uh, theme. And it is one of my favorites. But I wanted to include this piece that we listened to because it sort of brings us back full circle. It brings us back to his jazz roots. Yeah. Um, when they were filming the movie, the, for the dance sequence, which is what this music is from, uh, they didn't have this music. They were using an old Benny Goodman tune. There's a classic, iconic Benny Goodman jazz tune called uh, um, Sing, Sing, Sing. And Steven Spielberg asked John Williams, uh, write me something like this. I don't want to use the original recording. I want you to do something. So come up with something that sounds like this. And so he did. And it's just beautiful. It's just, it's so snappy. You, it's toe tapping. It's fun. I, I can easily imagine all kinds of people dancing to this music. Um, and it's got this, this fantastic big band quality to it that there again is, it's sort of a different jazz idiom than what we started with in the killers. 
which was more, you know, hard edged and almost sort of like bebop. Whereas with this, you have sort of the, the big band swing period from the 1940s. Uh, and I just think this is a thing of beauty. Uh, a couple of things is that he also got some prime players from the big band era to perform on this piece of music. First and foremost is Louis Belson, who's a, a legendary jazz drummer. For one thing, uh, he is widely regarded as the first drummer to play with two bass drums. You're welcome, metalheads. <laughs> <laughs> and he's played with Benny Goodman and uh, Harry James and Tommy Dorsey and Duke Ellington. And the guy on the clarinet in this piece is a guy named Abe Most, who has played with Les Brown. He is also in Tommy Dorsey's big band. But he also did a lot of uh, studio session work, playing for people like Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman and Earth, Wind & Fire. So... Uh, there's a pretty wild pedigree from those two great musicians. Um, this music is just, it's just such boisterous fun. It's probably one of the best things in the movie. All right. I'm so, so that, glad in retrospect that we are splitting this up because, yeah. um, like you said, it allows us to talk about, um, pieces of music we wouldn't otherwise. Also, I had so much fun doing this. And I will have uh, fun editing the episode together that I look forward to getting to do it two more times. <laughs> and so I will say, um, I don't know when part two is coming, probably within a year. Um, it'll be another profile episode, probably when we, when David and I can't think of, uh, what, uh, who I, already, to profile. I already have some ideas. We'll talk okay. about <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, so now you and I, Wes talked about how these things are going to be split up. I had a clear idea that we just go by decade. But I, but maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, so, a little peek behind the curtain, like a, some some behind the scenes talk, uh, because I feel like people might be interested in why. In your view, what should part two of John Williams be? Well, it depends on if we're doing. I mean, it depends ultimately on how many parts you're going to do. Is it going to be only two? Let's say three. Three. It'll be three parts. Gosh, then I would say probably we could. Uh, we could just keep it to maybe 80 to 95. Okay. And then that would bring us in the third episode. So that would be 15 years. And then the third episode mm-hmm. would be like the mo- the last 20 years. Yeah. Because part of the thing is that we're able to, to talk about so much stuff in the seventies, because I think that from the period of the early seventies into the early eighties, John Williams was the Hollywood film composer. Nobody could touch him with a 10-foot baton. He was the guy who was consistently churning out the very best film music. And then after that, you get to a sort of point where there's, uh, for me anyway, I find that there's there's less things to talk about. There are still some very significant pieces of film music coming up in his filmography. But for me, I think I find that they are fewer and further between. So I could say that, yeah, maybe 80 to 95 and then, you know, 96 to 2016, thereabouts. Okay, so everyone start really listening to 80 to 95, John Williams, because we'll be doing that, I'm going to say, I'm going to say in under six months. Okay, let's, uh, I'll put it it on the calendar. Absolutely, sounds good. I am the keeper of the Battleship Retention Calendar. I'm also the only person who looks at it. I am the occasional <laughs> checker of the Battleship Retention Calendar. Usually when it's like, ah, shit, I think I have a review due. <laughs> yeah. It's usually that. And it's like, oh, it was yesterday. All right. Well, Wes, thank you so much. Well, thank uh, you for having me. As usual. Me. And definitely everyone um, check out Musical Notation, uh, the podcast. Musical Notation with West Anthony. Yes, indeed. Um, musical Notation, comma, with, with, with West Anthony, mm-hmm. colon, 
the podcast. Yes. Exclamation points. <laughs> um, you can find that at battleshipretention.com and you can find this podcast at battleshipretention.com and all the other podcasts and the BP fleet and the, uh, all is including the movie, movie reviews that Tyler is apparently writing at the last minute. <laughs> all the oh time. yeah. Um, those are all there. Um, you can email us at David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey pretension, follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler pretension. Um, do you know what's going on at more than one lesson? We're recording so early. By the time this goes up, I believe what is available is an episode about Hail Caesar with the okay. companion film Sullivan's Travels. Okay. I don't know what's available at Hey Watch This, which is my TV podcast that I do with the king of TV, Paul Goebel, um, because it's too early. And I also won't be on the next episode because oh, I'll yeah. be in Mexico. Um, West, where can people find you uh, besides musical notation on, at BattleshipRetention.com? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony, and you can follow my show at uh, Notation Pod. All right. Or go to battleshippretension.com for that. We don't want to well, go off. You said that. Uh, that's we don't true. Have a Twitter. He's saying notation. He's saying. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought you meant like that's where people could actually listen to it. No, yes, absolutely. Follow no. all of us on Twitter. I've got like four accounts now. Yeah, I, I have two. So that's, <laughs> and, and that's, that's a weird juggling act in and of itself. But yes, my, the, the Twitter feed for the show, uh, the podcast is notation pod. All right. Um, That's it. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 